hot dog is a taco. It's clearly this is not closed all off all debate, but it helps. It helps. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for December thirteenth, twenty eighteen. The Tinkle Contest with a Skunk Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here at Slate's Brooklyn studio with Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Howdy, Emily. Howdy. I have to say, Jocelyn, our lovely producer, just winced at your title, which makes me wonder if listeners are also going to wince. Of course not. That is the best title. That's an obvious title. Okay. I've okay. never been so sure of a, the the clear title for a show ever. Okay. All right. Go for he's it. Because he's going to explain where that title came from. Well, sure. I, I know where it comes from. I just think invoking peeing. I was surprised that Nancy Pelosi did it. Anyway, we'll, we'll discuss. We can discuss. At great length. That uh, other voice, of course, is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning, who is in Los Angeles. Hello, John. Hi. It's miraculous. <laughs> Last night we taped our conundrum show all together here in New York. And, and, John he, and is now it's really early in the morning, and John is somehow in Los Angeles. <laughs> yes. Uh, I know. John is in Los Angeles feeling the effects of uh, the overnight cross country flight. Um, all right. Well, it's going to be quite a show. It's going to make the show amazing. On this week's show, Michael Cohen is going to go to prison for three years. And we learned a ton about why that is during his uh, sentencing this week. And also uh, a lot more about the Mueller, Mueller investigation. Then, chief of staff chaos at the White House. What does it tell us about the Trump administration and what impact might it have on? on how President Trump governs, then is a pre-Christmas government shutdown coming? Why? And why is Nancy Pelosi talking about skunks peeing? We will get to that as well. And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. So Michael Cohen this week was sentenced by a judge in New York in a bunch of two, well, two sort of separate cases, uh, one in the Southern District of New York, the other a Robert Mueller case, both connected to work he did for President Trump, who was oddly unnamed in all of this. We can talk about that. And he is going to go to prison for about three years. Uh, He's also going to pay a significant fine. Uh, Also this week, Michael Flynn, who also has pled guilty in the Mueller investigation, wrote a note kind of begging for mercy, begging for to be let off easy because of uh, cooperation he'd done and because of the military service he'd provide to the country. So, uh, and, and uh, well, we'll get to this in a second, but there's interesting um, news also about AMI, the owner of the National Enquirer, and its role in, in uh, this investigation. So, Emily, what is it that Michael Cohen uh, is pleading to, and what, what is he going to prison for, and what was significant in this sentencing this week? Michael Cohen was sentenced for both of the cases against him. One of them is in the Southern District of New York. It involves the hush payments to women who allegedly had affairs with Donald Trump. These were hush payments before the election. And the other case is the case that um, came out of Robert Mueller's office involving um, Cohen's contacts with Russians before the elections, business deals that he was trying to arrange with the Trump organization, and he lied to the FBI about it. So he got more credit for cooperating um, from Mueller's people than he did from the prosecutors in New York. The prosecutors in New York are still blaming him for not having come forward and sort of come clean quickly. Um, And and we're really, you know, critical of him as someone who was like participated in a lot of fraud. And there were some really strong words about interfering with the election. And so I think some evidence from the prosecutor's point of view that these payments were not a private matter, as pre- as President Trump would prefer. In other words, a private matter involving Trump's, you know, wishes to cover up the affairs from Melania Trump, but that they were really engineered to affect the election. And then connected to that set of allegations were revelations this week that the company that owns the National Enquirer had also admitted that they had participated in covering up um, the stories of these women in, you know, hiding these stories in order to affect the election. And so what you see is a sort of tightening of the evidence around proving that these hush payments were about interfering with the election, which then makes them illegal campaign contributions in some way. Here's what I find really odd about everything going on to do with Michael Cohen and these this sentencing and guilty please we're learning these important facts about the government's evidence against 
individual one who is the president of our country in this kind of backdoor way via a sentencing agreement, or I guess I should say like a sentencing. And and it's not fully explained. I still don't completely understand why the government is sure that Trump directed these payments, what the evidence for that is. It must be more than Michael Cohen's word. It probably involves whatever evidence they've gathered from the National Enquirer editor, David Pecker. It could involve figures at the Trump Organization, like Alan Weisselberg, who directs that organization. Maybe there's documentary evidence. We don't know. I think it's a really strange position for the country to be in, to have these serious criminal allegations against the president and not fully understand the factual basis for them. And the notion, by the way, which lots of Republicans have been batting about and which President Trump would prefer to be the truth, the idea that this is like a minor crime. I mean, someone just got sentenced to prison for three years for it. It's not a minor crime. Actually, I want to get into that question about whether uh, this is a minor crime and whether this is something that the the country should really be concerned about. I think the defense that the president could offer, uh, and certainly his defenders are offering a version of this, is there. There's the this is a personal matter. I'm trying to protect myself from embarrassment and from from exposure of my personal life, and and so I I'm just making these payments and in that to prevent being blackmailed. That's one defense. The other defense is. Even if you t- treat this as a as a as something which I'm doing to prevent the public from knowing about and prevent the public from having pejorative information about me to influence the election, in fact, everyone knows that the 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 election, everyone going up to the election knew that Trump was a a cat and a dog and a and a cheater, and that was a that was like a very obviously known public fact and. Insofar as he was trying to pay people off to not get this information out in public, it didn't really work because the public certainly had that view. And therefore, okay, yes, there's possibly a crime here, but the crime didn't have the didn't have significant impact. Is that is that a defense? You asking? Is this to me or you? Oh, do you want me to answer? Since I think that's ludicrous. (laughs) Well, so I think for. First of all, just to Emily's point, Emily, isn't it three years? But it's for a a combined set of. infractions not just the i mean it's, it's for lying it's all it's all bundled it's, together it's, yes it's more than yeah it's all bundled together so it's it's not just three years for the campaign finance piece um the other thing that's uh crucial about the ami participation in this is that it's corroborating it's not just the president said michael cohen was you know trying to save his own skin and therefore don't listen to anything he said what we now know is the prosecutors have been working with uh, David Pecker, the head of AMI, who has had this long ongoing relationship with the president, which is a kind of a treasure trove of the president's secrets. So I think the idea that this isn't a big enough crime, I mean, doesn't that just basically it comes down to a political fight over whether you can get enough. Re- basically, it, it'll become a question if this moves to impeachment. Um, you're, to your point, David, which is basically, yes, it's a crime, but is it enough to, to remove a president from office? And Emily, can you just explain why it's crucial to, um, and this is why AMI seems to be so important, because AMI pled that they engaged in this cover-up for the purposes of protecting the president's election chances, which which seems to poke a hole in any possible Edwards defense, which is the idea that that the payments were just made uh, to protect the president's reputation and had nothing to do with the election. Right. So if you're to go back and sort of try to answer all of these. So, David, your scenario depends on the idea that we enforce campaign finance law if we think that the campaign finance violation had an effect on the election. And that like reverse engineering is not how prosecutors think about campaign finance law. They think like, was there an infraction here? And John, you're referring to the case against John Edwards in which he was prosecuted and he was not convicted. And that is an important like event in American political history. It does not determine the law for the whole country around campaign finance violations. It's one trial, right? But but I'll- So go ahead. But also the facts are different. I mean, in other words, in, in Edwards's case, he was able to make uh, a plausible enough case that um, that he was just trying to protect his own personal reputation and that there wasn't this effort to save his electoral viability. What is different here is David Pecker and AMI have now said that this was specifically designed to protect the president's electoral viability. Yes. So 
even if you believe that that um, Ed, the the Edwards case was a precedent, which I understand what you're saying, it's not. It's one case. But even if you did believe it's a precedent, the facts here are explicitly different on the key point. Yes, I think that's all true. And also. To David's point, if it was so clear that this revelation would have no impact on the election because it was already baked in that Trump was a cad, then why was everyone trying to cover it up, right? And that's also the problem with this kind of campaign contribution. I mean, Donald Trump can give as much money as he wants to his own campaign, but he is supposed to disclose it. And so, you know, the the issue here is that if the whole point is to cover something up, there's no way to make the payment and disclose it. And so the secretive nature of the payment is in itself the the legal problem here. And I know, I mean, David in the past has expressed this feeling that like, what are you supposed to do because he was being blackmailed? Um, or no, you weren't. No, I do. I just keep coming back to this. I just find it so he's never going to be impeached for this. I would just like to record this. the man. He There's so many crimes that he's committed <laughs> right. and I believe he's committed. But I, I keep coming back to the idea like this is. Yes, he he committed. Uh, he there was a cover up. He used a, a media organization to do his dirty work to deceive the public. I certainly believe that. But it was for a, it wasn't it wasn't for a particularly corrupt cause. It was for a cause which had to do with his personal reputation, and it's very different than it, than the Russia stuff or than like him doing it to so that his business would make billions more. It's like it's. And I, I, I just feel like as a public matter, this is a loser of a case. So I'm totally sympathetic to the notion that there are many other uh, shenanigans going on that, you know, if we were like rating them would rate higher in terms of um, being corrupt and also just violating the public trust. However, there is something very odd about the notion that Michael Cohen is being sentenced to three years in prison. Now, John, you're right. It's not simply for these hush money payments, but still. And that the person who directed them and benefited them, individual one, is like free and clear. And, you know, that takes us to this problem of, you know, why the Justice Department thinks that um, it can't indict a sitting president. And then, okay, if that's true, could Trump be indicted after he leaves office? And then this whole weird discussion about the statute of limitations and some idea that like, well, if he was reelected, then he'd be in office long enough to be safe. But if he's not reelected in 2020, then they can go after him. In my view, that cannot be the right answer. Like, if the reason you can't be indicted is that you're president, then the statute of limitations has to stop. It has to toll, as lawyers say, so that um, when you're done, it's as if that time didn't pass, legally speaking, and you could still be indicted. It just bothers me that prosecutors, effectively what they're doing is going after, like, the little fry here in Michael Cohen and not the person who benefited and directed the criminal behavior. And that's just never a good outcome. But as we, but as you said, it's it's it, this is either the tip of the iceberg or a portion of the elephant or whatever you want to say. We, don't, we have no idea what what the rest of the uh, investigation looks like. True. Um, so it might not all balance on this on this one thing. Also, is it so unjust for Michael Cohen, who's you know clearly corrupt? lawyer working for a criminal organization or to make himself rich? Is it so wrong that he should go to prison? I'm not crying for him. I'm just saying he's taking the fall for someone else. And whenever you see that in the resolution of criminal cases, don't you also want like the person who benefited yes. to take the fall? Of like course. it always feels But he's un- not taking the fall unjust. for someone else. He is he also participated in this crime. Yes. And it, I mean, it's like being the drug carrier for the drug lord, right? Like, you did something wrong, but, like, this other dude made all the money. Well, Michael Cohen made a lot of money, too. Well, now he's giving it all back. There's a lot of restitution and fines going on for him as well. Um, What do you guys make Can I just add one? Yeah. Please. I think it's worth keeping the eye on what what do we think what does it matter if the president said things that are not true in public and not in a legal sphere two yes. of the things that he said well he said a lot of things that are untrue relative to these payments but uh he's denied the underlying affair he's denied that he knew about the payments both of those well the second thing we know not to be true because there's audio recording of him doing it but he now has said he deny he denies directing cohen to break the law as the prosecutors contend but now again you have uh, AMI coming in uh, and David Pecker saying corroborating Cohen essentially so now the president is saying this but he's saying it in public which in a court of law what doesn't you can lie in public all day long 
But in the impeachment context, does that matter? That he said things that, uh, that are not, that have turned out not to be true? Yeah. Good question. Emily, before we leave this, just one question. One of the odd things about all of this is the not saying the president's name piece of it all. <laughs> and as I understand it from what I've read, is it is customary, or I don't know if it's law or customary, for prosecutors not to use his name. But there's no restriction on Cohen, for example, saying the president did this. I don't really know why we have that convention, except that I guess if you're not directly accusing and indicting this other person, maybe it's some sort of reputational protection. But it is a strange convention. And now there's, you know, an endless stream of jokes about the movie called Individual One. I guess Trump has finally acquired a nickname. I've been kind of waiting for that. Do you think that that it matters that his name isn't being used? Not really. Do you? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it makes the campaign ads harder when you want to say Trump did this and it says it just says individual one. I don't know. You could have some pretty fun, like make some make some dark humor out of individual one. But yes, I suppose. Let me just throw in one other thing that um, that I've said before, but uh, I like repeating myself is that one of the things we're seeing here in in higher relief is that is. Uh, and this goes to the National Enquirer relationship really more than Cohen, but it's obviously very much part of Cohen, is that, that Donald Trump had a successful career built going around both, some people would say the laws, but if not the laws, then the norms of society, one of the norms being you're not supposed to have affairs while you're married. Um, he had a whole structure. He had Michael Cohen, who had a facility with making payoffs. He had what they called the favor bank uh, with the National Enquirer, where he basically got stories that were positive to him, but also other stories killed. On That was ongoing for many, many years. Um, he had a whole, a whole kind of network of arrangements that allowed him to dance between the raindrops. It's always struck me as almost impossible to fathom that somebody who has that kind of facility would turn it off and stay totally within the lines once it got into campaign season, and then even once you got into the presidency. Um, it, 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 so I guess my point is we don't know what the rest of the investigation will find, but it seems highly unlikely that um, somebody just who grows up with that habit of making your own arrangements around the rules would stop doing so. That's a great note to end on. Yes. So Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And you can go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member right now. I think you get a free two-week trial. And man, this is a good week to do it because we're going to do the most highbrow Slate plus in our history. It is going to be so highbrow. The, the ivory towers are going to ring with our with this Slate plus today. It's going to be incredible. So you got got to sign up today to hear this Slate plus. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Emily, you were a little bit late today. Were you interviewing for chief of staff? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked, David, because I am, in fact, available for this plum job that people are just lining up for. And I feel that I would be an excellent candidate. John, do you think that Emily has what it takes to be chief of staff in the Trump White House? And is she, in fact, one of the candidates you're hearing talk about? 
Uh, Am I on the short list or what? Well, many people have uh, been talking about Emily as as possible chief of staff. Um, uh, the criteria seems to be shifting to such a point where perhaps the fact that she just has a pulse is <laughs> um, is the sufficient criteria for the job. That's obviously yes, being... Uh, I knew it. I knew I could make it onto this list. That's being, of course, terribly <laughs> flipped. But it is, um, again, it's another striking thing um, that the job has not been filled, A, and then B, that one of the... Nick Ayers, the chief of staff for the vice president, basically turned down the job. And that this is all happening in public is amazing. I mean, look, they have to find someone to do this job, but it is a horrible job. Like, you can basically count on having to work incredibly hard under totally frustrating and unappreciated conditions in which people are going to be knifing you in the back in the chest from the moment you begin. You're probably going to have to hire a lawyer along the way and end up with some big legal bills or some GoFundMe campaign for your legal bills. And at the end of it, surely Donald Trump is going to be excoriating you on Twitter. Like, we all imagine that that is going to be happening to John Kelly soon enough, having watched Rex Tillerson take his own um, dive the other day. To frame the the way we should think about the chief of staff is that, you know, the president's got at least three huge challenges in front of him. One is the re-election for 2020. The second is the mounting number of legal challenges and also the Democrats coming with their own challenges and investigations. And then three is actually if he wants to try to get anything done. So, you know, having to do the normal chief of staff job. By the way, you know, normally a chief of staff has to do just one of those, which is to try to order the, uh, the administration to achieve the goals of the president. In this case, he's got those two other big jobs and a mercurial president who doesn't want to really do much of, of, of a lot of that. Uh, so even if you went into the job and said, I'm just going to be mercenary and I'm going to try and do the work required to help the American people, your boss is going to be fixated on, you know, the latest movement in the Mueller case, cr- making your life uh, quite complex. It's interesting the order in which you put that, John, that there's the ele- re-election, the legal troubles, and then third, third, and, and almost as an afterthought, it's, oh, by the way, the job of president is actually to to help administer the government that runs the country. But that's just a sideshow. The, the the people who've been considered for this job are extraordinary. I mean, we've heard amazing In names. In what sense do you mean that word? Uh, I mean, extraordinary. The, the 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 idea that the Newt Gingrich could be, have this role, or that Rick Santorum could have this role, or that Mark Meadows could have this role, is astonishing. Newt Gingrich, who I think is is actually probably a totally credible candidate at this point, is the most egomaniacal, chaotic person on the planet, except possibly Donald Trump. And Rudy Giuliani, don't forget. Like, there is a way in which the people who are willing to serve in these roles, first of all, they're people whose careers are effectively over, right, who crave the spotlight and who resemble Trump in their sort of willingness to whip up chaos and attention for attention's sake. There's a a nice sort of commonality here. The thought I had about the chief of staff job, John, and and correct me if I'm wrong, is that that we're so used, so accustomed to thinking of it in one way, because uh, in in the modern era, when there's been a chief of staff, it's had a had a very specific kind of gatekeeper role, organizing role, chaos suppressing role, uh, agenda setting role, information flow role. And so we think like, oh, well, who, yeah. who, who has the chops to do that for the Trump White House? But we know now that that doesn't none of that matters. Like it doesn't it's not actually a job that particularly matters for the Trump White House because we just it's going to be chaos that he's going to go outside whatever strictures you might try to set up. You can't control the information flow to him. You can't control the personnel flow to him. You can't you know, decide what decisions he's going to make and not make by by doing that. And therefore, it's it's the job is is it's not just that it's a terrible job. It's a job that doesn't to me, it doesn't seem like it's important. But am I wrong to think it's not important? Well, I think you've uh, I think you've, it's a really interesting question because you've hit on a key challenge in the administration. It's a job that is hugely important and has been going all the way back to Sherman Adams with with um, Eisenhower because the job has gotten so big, you need somebody who can, uh, A, keep the thing in 
keep the administration going uh, and organized and also then manage the principal, which is in this case the president, and keep him out of the process at times and then insert him in the process when it's required. And knowing when to do each of those two things is a f- super important skill. Um, and so in a healthy functioning White House that um, operates to put the president's agenda forward and make it work, it's a hugely important job. But as you quite rightly pointed out, that's not the way this White House works. And and that's the model, by the way, that John Kelly was trying to run and has, to some extent, been more certainly more successful than Reince Priebus. One of the criticisms of Reince Priebus was that he was not playing the role of chief of staff as it's traditionally conceived and as I just tried to explain it, but he was basically service, servicing the needs of a president and that he was basically like a a body guy and doing just what the president wants. And the, all the chiefs of staff, Republican and Democrat, who I talked to about the role said that's that's the worst way to run it. So that's more likely to be the kind of person that the president would like in the role now. That seems like a good job for Newt Gingrich, the way you just described it. No? Well, no, I think Newt Gingrich doesn't get Newt Gingrich is such an egomaniac. He's why would he he, he doesn't want to, to do. I mean, it seems like a job for Hope Hicks. It's a job for someone who's willing to to endure the slings and arrows, slings and arrows, and be personally loyal and care about the person rather than think either about themselves or about the country. I feel like Newt Gingrich would be good at it if he felt like taking the slings and arrows. Sorry, John, you answer. You well, don't actually, know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, it would you know, in one of the many many ways in which a disruptive president would be really interesting, and this one certainly has the appetite for disruption, um, would be if a president came in and said to their chief of staff, who was a strong personality like uh, Newt Gingrich, or said this also to their vice president, said, look, the job is way too big for any one person. You're going to run the show. You're going to be like the chief operating, the chief executive officer and the chief operating officer, and I'm going to be the chairman of the board. So you're going to go hammer out all this stuff and then tee up decisions for me to make, uh, bring me in when it's necessary, but I want your force of personality working on mine behalf, as Nixon used to say, I want you to be my chief SOB, and let's go get some stuff done. Oh, by the way, I've got all this legal stuff I'm facing, so I really need you to do this because I'm going to have to deal with my personal affairs, which I'm sorry might occasionally impinge upon the duties of state, but fortunately I've picked you to go handle the duties of state and stay completely away from my own personal problems. You could imagine uh, somebody like Newt Gingrich doing that. They would get a sense of glory to be, to be able to uh, you know, enact all of those things that they believe in too and not be bogged down by all the personal stuff. The problem is what I just outlined is, is a bit of a fantasy given what we know about the behavior and the impulses of, of the president at this at this time. Do you think Emily so we're only two years we're less than two years into the Trump presidency of what could be a potentially eight years believe it or not and he's burned through the sort of third raiders he brought with him to begin with who didn't know anything uh, and some of them remain but yes most yeah Kelly, Kelly and Conway is a, like a reasonable She's an intelligent person. Stephen Miller is still there. Yeah, Stephen Miller is an intelligent, I mean, intelligent, intelligent, villainous person. But how low can we go? How much worse can the quality of people around the president get? Well, I mean, I think it's also that it just changes because people's reason for doing the job changes. So, you know, in William Barr, um, Trump's choice for attorney general, you see someone who had this job years ago during the George H.W. Bush administration has ideas about the power of the executive and the president that are in line with Trump's and is willing to come back and try again. It's a lot of power. Um, Now, a cabinet official, the role of attorney general is a lot different from chief of staff. I think this is the job that um, seems the most unpleasant. So it's just you're going to have to have someone want this job for their own agenda. And attention seeking seems like the main benefit right now. If you were making your reputation um, and you didn't really have one, or if it's your swan song, you crave attention, you get to come back one more time. Um, John, how come Corey Lewandowski's name hasn't really surfaced in all of this? I mean, I know he was sort of like drummed out onto the outside, but he seems like exactly the person who would resurface at this moment. Trump likes him. Super great. That's a really great point. I have no idea. Um, clearly he, and especially with a book to sell, would want to have his name come be floated. Also, Anthony Scaramucci, you'd think that he'd be bouncing around on this on this front too. 
Yeah, good point. I think Scaramucci does not have a chance because Scaramucci is a joke. Lewandowski is, you know, he was bounced because he behaved in terrible, violent ways. But I don't think people think of him as a joke in the way Scaramucci is. Wasn't he perceived as being fairly effective at what he was doing? Well, not by by Jared and Ivanka, who supposedly right. were the ones who go, who pushed him out. Um, but again, given <laughs> given where the state of things are, it seems like he would be actually a quite a good choice. I mean, if you're choosing it from the from the perspective of the of the current occupant of the office, not not the kind of platonic ideal of the job. Good job, Emily. If Corey Lewandowski ends up with a job. Then I'll have called it. You'll have called it. So we now know that that won't happen. But I like the idea that I surfaced some some possibility. All right. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. On Tuesday, in what was a, a new a new one for this administration. We've had so many new kinds of extraordinary spectacle, but we had a, a new one, uh, which was the president meeting with incoming House pres- House Speaker, presumed Nancy Pelosi, and Democratic Senate leader, minority leader Chuck Schumer, in the White House to talk about how to prevent a government shutdown. The government uh, or some portion of the government is not funded going into the new year. And if there isn't a bill to remedy that, there are parts of the government will have to shut down right before Christmas. So the president summoned Pelosi and Schumer to the White House to meet with him and Vice President Pence. And what ensued was a bizarre public gabbling and fighting and spatting over whether there would be a shutdown in which most memorably President Trump said he would be glad to shut down the government to get $5 billion in funding for the wall. Incidentally, $5 billion he hasn't actually asked for in his budget, which is in itself a weird <laughs> a weird point. That's so funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, they've asked for $1.6 billion, but now he's, he says that they should get $5 billion. But that's not in whatever the, 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 the proposals they've ever made. It seems so. like you need to cross that out and write it in. So uh, after And after this uh, bizarre encounter in front of the cameras, in which Schumer and Pelosi were just self-evidently delighted that Trump took credit for the shutdown and said it would be, you know, he looked forward to shutting down the government over this. Um, Pelosi then went back and spoke to her caucus and and talked about how this was a effort by Trump to show his manhood such as it was and and that this was like uh, getting into a tinkle contest with a porcupine. Is that right? No, skunk. Skunk, skunk excuse me. A tinkle grief. contest with a skunk. A tinkle <laughs> contest with a porcupine it might be even better. Uh that would be that would that would be amazing. Uh, so skunks and porcupine, admit it, they occupy the same mental space. Like they're no, one they're, of them smells really bad, yeah, and one, one of, of them, them shoots quills. I know, but they totally both, different. but they're both these strange animals that have odd defenses that are skulk around. I mean, I guess, but and porcupines sort of don't like show up in your backyard, whereas like skunks in my neighborhood do. Anyway, so John. It, this has been portrayed certainly by Democrats as, as what a wonderful concession the president has made. What a great, uh, great uh, rhetorical victory we've gotten with the president taking credit for a potential shutdown. Um, is that is that the is that basic reading, in fact, the correct reading? Well, uh, I don't know. I think there, there are a number of different ways you can read it. So let me offer a couple of them. This will be incomplete. So on the one hand. <laughs> the traditional politics way is, you know, the president is in control and so are Republicans of the entire of both the executive and legislative branches of Congress. And so it's their job to keep the lights on and they can't do it. And um, the fact that the president owned and said, I'll be happy to shut down the government for the over the border issue um, traditionally would look like totally irresponsible impetuousness um, when he's in control. 
And I think that will matter with a certain number of voters. And also, by the way, that there is, we're talking about a difference here between, as you said, 1.6 and 5 billion. Uh, The president needs the Democratic votes. He needs a couple of things. He needs Democratic votes in the Senate because it needs to clear a 60-vote threshold. And by the way, one of the things Pelosi was pressuring him on or, or was using as leverage is that there are a number of conservatives who don't want to vote for the funding from the conservative side having nothing to do with the wall. So she basically said, okay, have the vote today. You have the majority in the, in the house. Um, Go ahead and try and call that vote. And her argument basically is it won't pass. So you need Democrats in the house too. So uh, the reality is that a president who bragged about his negotiating skills and who campaigned by saying he would have a special ability to bring both sides together was not really interested in this meeting in getting a deal or, or having a negotiation. Now, the, that could be for one of two reasons. One, it rallies his supporters around the issue that brought them all together in the first place. Uh, and so it's a nice consolidation, both specifically with respect to the issue and then more broadly with respect to, you know, there, that's the guy I elected. He's fight tough. He's fighting for the things we care about. Uh, and then secondly, it could be just negotiation for negotiation's sake. So he puts out his maximum position, it'll get whittled down, and maybe he'll get up to $3 billion instead of, you know, 1.6 or whatever it is. I think the, the election in 2018 proved that anytime you say, well, his base loves this, you're not really actually saying very much. A, that was boring after a while anyway. But um, his base loves this. It's not boring. Gonna... It doesn't get you all the votes you need. Sorry, right. His, right. Right. His base loves him, uh, you know, lost them 40 seats in the House and is part of the reason he, they're having such trouble with, you know, suburban women and so forth. So and that, that'll matter all in 2020. So I just want to speak up for the gender dynamics of this conversation. Yes. I have my issues with Nancy Pelosi and how long she has been in power. I was so thrilled to see the way she just masterfully handled herself and the whole situation. She was forthright. She was dignified, but she was also like bringing it to Trump in this way that I haven't really seen anyone do for a long time. I don't know, maybe ever. It was really satisfying to watch her just have such a command. She it was this ridiculous piece of theater, and she and Schumer were objecting to it even as they were participating in it. But she also turned it to her advantage, calling it a Trump shutdown very early in the encounter. I think, like, riled the president, baited him into claiming it as his own shutdown. And then, you know, her willingness to say, like, you're putting forth facts that are wrong. And so we shouldn't have this debate in public because we don't want to have to call you out on that. Um it made her point about the falsehoods um, in a powerful way. And I just was really happy watching but, the whole thing. I want to I totally agree with you and, and thought she, you know, comported herself brilliantly and, and, you know, proved why she is the commanding and successful politician that she is. I don't get the whole why we don't want to do this in public. It was great to do it in public. Like, how rare is it to see people on different sides of a political issue actually go at each other in a substantive way, not in a stage debate, not in theatrics for a vote purpose, but because they're having a substantive, I mean, sort of quasi-substantive discussion about an issue of the day. It's people are hearkening back. I mean, you, in the UK right now, we have this incredible set of fights over Brexit. And in the the British political tradition of prime minister's questions and the the aggressive parliamentary debate is wonderful and we have so little of it here what's 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 so bad about having it in public and why i don't even know why she wanted to not have it in public right well no i actually totally agree with you about all of that it may be that that was just like a sort of posture that she and schumer were adopting i think they also didn't know that they were going to basically like win the theater moment and so in that sense they maybe came into it feeling like they were pawns and then it turned out that they were able to turn the tables and then I'm sure they were glad that it happened um, I think but and I guess also if you were conducting serious negotiations you don't do it like that right yeah the reason I mean to make the do it in private case well a there's the obvious one which is that every you want everybody to kind of get to brass tacks and not stop behaving for the cameras but the second thing is when you make your good faith offer, your side's going to think that you've totally abandoned them and sold them out. But you're making that offer so that you get a return offer from the other guy. Then you can start doing the whittling away of, of the demands of each side. 
And so it only looks good when you got the whole final thing put together. If you stop it in the middle of the race, you uh, people are on both sides going to freak out and think you're selling them out. I want to go to the shutdown question. So if the shutdown occurs, if they don't manage to, to get something passed, it affects about a quarter of the government. It doesn't affect things like Medicare and Social Security. It doesn't affect the Department of Defense. It affects, I think, the Department of Agriculture, Homeland Security, but not any of the Homeland Security that is actually Homeland Security. The Interior Department, which probably means that the National Park shut down, which is, tends to be something that people care about. But most of the government is going to stay open. It is not going to be that sort of slow-rolling catastrophe that those of us who lived through some of the Gingrich-Clinton shutdowns in the 90s remember. I almost feel that shutdowns have lost their emotional impact because they've, the government has they've so cordoned off things that almost nothing is really affected by it. And I wonder if it's if it if having a shutdown is actually is bad for the party in power or for whoever is held responsible as as people seem to to think it is. I don't think it I just don't think it has that meaning in the way it yeah. used to. Well, when the Democrats shut the group got blamed for shutting the government down over DACA over the immigration fight last year, they thought that was a big defeat. Like they backed off after a weekend because they didn't want the headlines. Do you think that that was like Well, I think this issue hits Democrats harder than hits Democrat Democrats the and their voters care more about their about the government working than Republican voters. The I think you're right, David. I think you I think the power of a of a shutdown is not um and not what it once was. Um, but this is just another, I know this seems silly, but it's worth just going back and checking what the original claim of the Trump presidency was, that, which is that he was going to have a unique ability um, to keep these kinds of things from happening. And uh, by the way, I would say one other thing that while this looks like the normal or maybe even just a higher level of the same kind of circus, there's actually uh, I mean, the farm bill made it through the Senate. Now, people will say there's a lot of corporate welfare in it and so forth. But there was a huge bipartisan vote on a farm bill. And criminal justice reform actually seems now to have hit a weird snag. But it was progressing and going forward on a bipartisan basis, too. So actually, while this was looking uh, totally messed up, there was actual progress on kind of old-fashioned bipartisan lawmaking in those two other areas. Can I make one more point about the shutdown or maybe really just about negotiations, which is that this is a ridiculous fight. The wall has tremendous symbolic value to Trump and Democrats view it as counterproductive, insulting to Mexico and ridiculous. And so they don't want to do it. But if we were having like an actual willingness to negotiate and there's so easily a deal here, right? There's strong bipartisan support for a deal on immigration where um, the dreamers get protected and there's more money for border security. Like if we were being rational about this, it would be easy to get to yes. And so the shutdown operates in that context. It's like, you know, a sort of temper tantrum for no particular reason. A hundred percent. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, you were in the room together when you were you're having uh, your cocktail, as you did last night at our pre-show cocktail party. What will you be chattering about to uh, Mr. Bazelon? So here, this is my sort of criminal justice reform bulletin for the week. So I was writing this week um, in a Times op-ed about progressive prosecutors and what they could be doing to improve the way their local criminal justice systems work. In the meantime, it just... Every week, there are these awful headlines of some terrible injustice that reminds me that, you know, whatever good certain elected DAs are doing or whatever good things are happening in certain cities and other places, things remain terrible. So this week, a woman named Centoya Brown, who was being trafficked as a 16-year-old, sex trafficked, was told that she has to serve 51 years in prison because she killed this man who um, had picked her up for sex when she was 16. She was 16 when this crime took place. She's been in prison for 14 years. The Tennessee Supreme Court said that even though life sentences for juveniles without parole are unconstitutional, not always, but mostly, this girl, this young woman, should stay in prison for 51 more years. Like that, I just don't understand that. It's... Oh, my God. (laughs) It's horrifying. And then in Brooklyn, we had this situation where this young mother named Jasmine Headley was sitting on the floor of a food stamps office because there were no chairs. And she got into some altercation with like the 
uh, some administrative people. They called the NYPD. They arrested her. She ended up in Rikers for four days um, because she had an outstanding warrant from New Jersey. But that was a nonviolent crime. They issued a protective order so she couldn't have contact with her baby. I mean, the one thing about that case is it got resolved really quickly, in part because of the district attorney, Eric Gonzalez, but mostly because of a video and a lot of outside agitation by protesters. Mayor de Blasio, even in recognizing that this was a bad outcome, um, refused to in any way blame the NYPD for this incident. I mean, this video is really upsetting. And you can totally imagine yourself in this kind of position where law enforcement authorities are like behaving. It just should never have gone to the point where a one-year-old child is being yanked out of their mother's arms when like nothing violent whatsoever has happened. I mean, in that that case is is shocking. But one of the points that people I've seen people make in context of that is how as rich people, as privileged people, like you just don't when you go to the you know, your rare encounters with government are relatively civil government offices where there are seats and like their processes because, you know, rich people complain if they don't have the processes and how with what indignity. Yes. People are poor people are treated when they are seeking to get government benefits to which they are entitled under law and which they need. A hundred percent. No, you're absolutely right. And to the extent that we middle class or upper middle class people do of these moments, the cops don't get called, right? Because I'm a privileged white person. That is not actually going to happen to me. And I don't know about you, but like sitting on the floor with your baby because there are no chairs, like that is a totally normal thing to do. Anyway, that was all a yeah. sort of upsetting week in um, in particular cases. Even if like you hope things are getting better systemically in some places, there are just still these bad things happening. John, what is your chatter? Even though it's six in the morning where you are, so if you had a cocktail right now, you would probably lose your job. My cocktail chatter is actually about cocktails. It is a um, a fantastic note that uh, Winston Churchill had with him when he came to visit the United States during Prohibition. And I sort of imagine it like, um, you know, Paddington, uh, that this note was was safety pinned to the inside of his his overcoat. It was discovered, I should give all glory and praise to Meredith Frost, who put it on the the Twitter. Um, And it, it is a note from Churchill's doctor, and it reads as follows. This is to certify that the post-accident convalescence of the Honorable Winston S. Churchill necessitates the use of alcoholic spirits, especially at mealtimes. The quantity is naturally indefinite, but the minimum requirements would be 250 cubic centimeters. I just felt like this <laughs> Do you think he wrote it himself, or do you think he got <laughs> a doctor to write it? I'm serious. Do you think he was like, I'm just going to forge this? Or he actually went to a doctor and got a doctor to do the, the dirty work. I, uh, I, it's a good point. I, I bet it's the former. That's very funny. Um, my chatter, also something I found on the internet, um, as so often I do, I was looking at Kotke, Jason Kotke's wonderful blog, and he had a link to something which is from cuberule.com. And somebody whose Twitter handle is at phosphatide, but I don't, I couldn't, didn't have time to check out who at phosphatide is. So apologies, phosphatide. And it's the cube rule of food. And it's, there have been many discussions about whether something is a sandwich or not. And the cube rule of food is this wonderful, very simple chart, which designates six different kinds of dish. Um, Anything that has a starch on the bottom is toast. Anything that has starch on the bottom and top is a sandwich. Anything that has it on three sides is a taco. And anything that is encircled is sushi. Anything that is fully enclosed. So it's all about is, geometry. It's all about geometry. It's a very simple heuristic. Taxonomy. And it's and it's and it's uh, beautifully illustrated. So check it out at cuberule.com. Also, we have a listener chatter this week, and uh, per usual, you you brought the noise this week, dear listeners. You tweeted at Slate GabFest with chatters and and sent us emails at GabFest at Slate.com about it. And this week comes from Daniel Friel at Friel Photo. And Daniel Friel points us to a film that was recently uncovered. I guess the set of films that was uncovered made in 1915 in France by uh, a somebody who was really interested in French artists and French high culture figures. And this guy had captured film of Monet, Renoir, Rodin, and Degas at work and at 
leisure. And so there's about 10 minutes of film and you see Monet. All of them are fairly superannuated and all of them have spectacular facial hair. Uh, So superannuated Monet painting in the garden and painting what looks to be like a very familiar, you can see the, the weeping willows in the background. You're like, oh, I've seen those weeping willows in a Monet painting. And there's film of uh, Renoir similarly sitting with his, I think, grandson, or no, his, his son helping him and dig, uh, Rodin chiseling at some nice bit of white marble. Uh, and it's great. It's just really cool to see these people who you, you've only seen in still uh, actually in action. So check out this rare film of Monet Renoir, Rodin and Degas. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You can follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and, of course, tweet chatter at us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.